Well, good morning, church family. I hope you all are doing well this morning and enjoying your time together in worship. I'm sad to not be with you, uh, but I wanted to let you know that my family and I, we are having a great time together at a, a great view, as you can see. Uh, this is a, a little lake up in Oklahoma that Jennifer grew up coming to as a little girl, and her family continues to come here year after year. We hadn't had a chance to, to join them in quite some time, and so we wanted to make it a priority this year. And so we're up here getting some much-needed rest and family time in what has been an unusual year, as I, as I know everyone else can relate. So thank you for allowing us the time to, to get away and uh, spend some time together. Uh, but I wanted to put together this video to introduce to you uh, the individual that I've asked to fill in in my absence. But before I make that introduction, let me make a quick reminder that next Sunday, we are going to be offering a second service that's going to go from 9 o'clock till 10 o'clock. Uh, uh, 10 and after 10 in the morning and so we look forward to providing that second service and uh, we're going to continue to just evaluate the need for it and the demand for it over the next several weeks but um, our, our heart behind that is that it's really the only way for us to continue to create space for us to safely gather with these protocols that are just a normal way of doing life these days and so if that's a service that interests you please make sure you take the time to register and if you have questions about it, don't hesitate to reach out and let us know what we can do to help uh, provide some more answers and clarity. I believe you probably heard a few more details in the announcements this morning, but we look forward to providing that and are here to answer any questions if you have them. Now, before we think too much about next week, let me go ahead and make the introduction for this morning. Uh, when I started looking at Matthew chapter 10, um, I, I knew that there was going to be this, this section that lent itself to having a conversation about what it would look like to engage uh, in the pu public arena, in the political arena, with a, a Christ-like mindset, with a biblical mindset. And uh, as I started thinking through that, I, I knew that that would be an important conversation for us to have as a church because it's it's an election year, we're in the election season, we're constantly confronted with questions of politics and what does it mean for us to engage in a, in a meaningful way. And so I, I, I knew this is an important conversation. And so we're actually going to be slightly out of order this morning. Um, we're going to skip ahead a little bit in Matthew chapter 10 to have this conversation, and then I'm going to get us back on track next week. But knowing this was such an important conversation, uh, the first person that came to my mind was the individual who you're going to be hearing from this morning. And it's my pleasure to introduce to you a good friend of mine uh, by the name of Nick Pitts. Nick and I worked together uh, when I was at first Arlington. He was the college minister there and did a phenomenal job reaching college students, has a, a great heart and just a great mind for ministry, and he's a good friend. Uh, over the last few years, he's kind of ventured out into some new areas of interest and passions for him. He was recently uh, a fellow at the Institute of Global Engagement at Dallas Baptist University, and I think he is well-equipped and uh, just well-experienced in being able to speak to this conversation today, so I'm grateful uh, that you'll get a chance to hear from him. And, uh, Nick, grateful for you. Thank you for agreeing to do this, praying for you, brother, praying for all of y'all that are there, and, and just hope and know that you guys leave encouraged today, and uh, I look forward to being with you all again next week. All right, we'll see you guys soon. Well, good morning, church family. How are you? Good. So great to be with you all. Uh, like Jeremiah has said, my name is Nick Pitts. I served with Jeremiah on staff at First Baptist Arlington, but it was by way of Tennessee. And so uh, on behalf of the great state, you're welcome. Um, 
and uh, for Davy Crockett, and, and thank you so much for the Houston Oilers. Uh, this season, I think we finally are getting a return on that investment. But I am so grateful to be here with you all. I'm so grateful for your pastor, Jeremiah Smith. He is a, a man after God's own heart, has just blessed my soul um, immensely, and I am forever changed because of who he was um, and who he is, and he just means the world to me. Uh, largely because he points me to the creator of the world in every conversation that we have. But before we go ahead and get started, I, I'd like to open us up and, and just remind us of a few truths about who God is. Uh, it says in Psalm 121 that God neither sleeps nor slumbers, that God has just, he has stayed up all night. He's got so many things to do, but one of those things to do is he's been thinking about you, it says in Psalm 139. His thoughts of you outnumber the sand on the shore. Uh, and then, not only that reality, but then the beautiful reality that God's been staying up all night thinking about you. And then what we learn in Proverbs 15:8 is that the prayer of the righteous is his delight. And so I thought before we get started, knowing it to be true that with him we can do all things, apart from him we can do nothing, perhaps we can use this time to just beg God to change us and make us different than, we, than how we walked into these doors as well as before we tuned into this broadcast. Does that sound okay? And so let's go ahead and bow our heads and, and just let's, as it says, to, reckon, to be still and to know that he's God. And in the stillness and knowing that he's God, knowing that, one, he's gone before us, knowing that he is before all things and he holds all things together, hearing the same promise he gave to, to Moses in Exodus 14, to be quiet and I'll fight for you. In that stillness, let's break that and ask God to do something in this moment. Ask God, what is the word that you need this morning? What is the hurt that you brought into this place? What is the anxiety that has accompanied you since you woke up this morning? Lift it up to God. And be bold because of what Jesus did on the cross, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace and receive grace and mercy in time of need. Don't be bitter that God hasn't done something for you because you have not, because you asked not. Let's take advantage of what God has done for us in Jesus in this moment. And so, Father, uh, you have heard the prayers of your people. They are your delight. And, and so, God, I just ask that in this time and in this place today that we would hear from you that you would rend the heavens open, Father, and we might catch a glimpse of your glory and be changed. We don't want it to be like last week. We want it to be better than anything we've ever experienced. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us specifically a word that would bring coolness and calmness to our souls today. Help us to fall deeper in love with who you are and better understand the love that you showed for us in your son, Jesus. Father, help us to talk more like you, love more like you, be more like you in this dark world for the glory of your name. And God, may eternity be changed and heaven be more populated because of us gathering in this place today. 
I love you, God. I thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And we pray all these things in his mighty name. Amen. Well, um, as I was thinking about what uh, I could talk about with you all this morning, I couldn't help uh, escaping the voice of God, namely Morgan Freeman. Um, In 2007, he uh, came out with a movie entitled Bucket List. Are you all familiar with this movie, this concept that Morgan Freeman and Mr. Jack would, would decided that they were about to kick the bucket and there were certain activities that they wanted to do, things that they wanted to kind of uh, see before they kicked that proverbial bucket. And so they, they ventured all over this world, taking on all of these great adventures and doing all these things. And I thought to myself, that really changed me, as Morgan Freeman often does in his various movies of Shawshank Redemption and Evan Almighty, et cetera, et cetera. What, what could I do? What are the things that I need to change? And wh- what are those risks that I need to take that before I kick the proverbial bucket? Well, there was one thing that I wanted to do, and that was um, uh, to become a a professional basketball player. Um, I I know what you're thinking to yourself right now. This this specimen before me, uh, he looks like he was primed for the NBA. God knew exactly what he was doing in that. But there was a couple of problems with that, in that one, um, I lack this particular quality known as talent. Um, I, I just don't have any. Um, athleticism just hasn't been given to me, and I'm about as fast as a 56K modem, and so I, I just am I'm not really quick. And so uh, that, and then so there was another thing that I wanted to do that I be- it became a reality for me two summers ago, and that was run with the bulls. I have always wanted to run with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. And so, like any good friend that wants the best for his friends, uh, I decided to reach out to my friends to know, ask if any of them wanted to venture halfway across the world and risk their lives for the sake of an Instagram picture. Um, and uh, I recruited three of my friends to go with me to Pamplona, and it was just a sight, uh, and it was just a phenomenal experience, but we couldn't just go to Pamplona. So it happens around the 4th of July holiday, so my friends are located in various parts of the country. We all meet up in New York on the 4th of July, and we celebrate uh, the 4th of July holiday like true Americans by watching someone eat an inordinate amount of hot dogs at the Coney Island hot dog eating contest. And then we flew out to Spain that night, and we got to Pamplona, and it is a beautiful festival, this, uh, the running of the bull, San Fermín, that happens in this small little village in Spain. There is hundreds of thousands of people pour into this city, and there's these stone streets that, just, that, that are all throughout the city. And there's these massive buildings on each side, these stone buildings that just really make these alleyways, essentially, all throughout the city. And individuals pouring from all across the world. Hundreds of thousands of people are in this city. But before the festival gets started, the running of the bulls, which happens every morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, before any of that gets started, they host one big party that makes New Orleans look like Chuck E. Cheese. Um, It is just this immaculate, 
huge parties. Businesses shut down so that business owners can put tables out in front of their business so that people can go and eat together as family. It is a rich experience, and it is so filled with life. I highly, it's just, it's a phenomenal experience. Everyone's dressed in white, but they're drinking this, uh, this mixture that turns your clothes pink, essentially. I remember as soon as I walked out, that it, it just throw, they throw the drink out. So you walk out in all white, and you're like being very careful not to get your clothes dirty. And there's an older gentleman and as soon as I walked out of our apartment, he's, he just yelled, hola, and he threw his drink on me, and it was just nothing but pink from then on out. So, I mean, it's just this beautiful, crazy experience. And so after that, that opening festival day, then we decided it was going to be, it was the time to be running with the bulls. And so you can't, you, there's no registration process when you're running with the bulls. Essentially what happens is you wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning at, and you meet at City Hall. You meet at the city square. And when you meet at the city square, then essentially they lock you into the, lock you into the streets so that the only way out is out. <laughs> and so we locked it, we got in, we got to the city square, they put the, the, they put the blocks down, so then there's this little path now that they're going to be running the bulls through, and you're going to try to run away from the bulls during this path. It's this windy path, there's no jumping out of it, it's literally the only way in, it is at the end in the arena, and so we are just there. But remember, they've had this big party, and they're throwing their drinks around stone streets. This is like running on a slip and slide, one might say. And if you'll remember from my basketball glory days, or lack thereof, I lack speed. This is not going well for me. Already we're thinking about this. And so, uh, so we get locked in, we get into our position, and I'm, there's probably anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people The bulls are at one particular end. The arena that you run into that you can eventually jump out of is on another end. And there's people that are just lined up. And I decided, because I'm I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb, I wanted to be at the very front so that when the commotion starts, I can be ready and run as fast as I can to hopefully not get gored by the bulls and allow my mom to have her firstborn son for another day. And so I, as the tension just continues to build, as it gets closer and closer to eight o'clock in the morning, I'm, I'm beginning to think, what in the world have I done in this moment? right? I have so much to live for. I've got, a, I've got a great little brother. I've got family. I've got friends. What is happening? This was a really bad decision. I could have just watched the YouTube video, and that would have been great. Technology today, we can get a green, sca- green screen. I can take the picture, etc. So I'm beginning to have all these doubts uh, inside of me. I'm having this fear well up within me as well. And then as soon as all these doubts and uh, insecurities and all this worry is beginning to get to a point, all of a sudden I hear the cannons go boom. And that's when they released the bulls. Now, remember, the only way out is into the arena. But if you get to the arena too early, they will throw tomatoes at you. So now I am, the shame of the tomatoes, one, the the significance and the honoriness of the bulls there, and then about 20,000 Spaniards 
that, that know no, such a thing as personal space <laughs> are, are right there. And so I'm just waiting, feeling it, ready for whatever's going to happen, ready to just start running and not having any regard for humanity so that I can be safely and get back to the hotel and eventually get back to our vacation. And so as the tension is building, as I began to, I looked back and there was people that were starting to rustle up. And before I know it, I see the bulls that are coming pretty far down. And it is a sight to see as people, the looks in their eyes as these bulls are running after them, as, the, as people, some people are falling down, other people are screaming, there's people that are pushing off to the sides. And then I'm realizing I've got to get going or I'm going to be a part, from the, a part of this. And I do not want to meet a bull in a very intimate fashion while I am over in Spain. And as I, so as I start running, you start to feel the push of everything and the intensity only grows and grows. The uncertainty, the violent nature of this and the fear that happens because of this. And how often is this true of the looming political campaign we're entering into right now? where you're beginning to see families and friends fight and push and accuse one another. The intensity is building that this, you continue to hear the proposition that this election is unlike any election that we've ever faced. There is, there is animosity, there is anger, there is contempt. There is broken friendships. You know, in 2016, one out of every six Americans said that they lost a friend because of the election. Um, 15% of American churchgoers said that they left their church over the 2016 election. We find ourselves in a race with the bulls today here in the U.S., but what does it look like for us to run in a distinctively Christian manner? What does it look like for us to be the salt and light in the political arena? As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 2, to be the fragrant aroma of Christ. That what, that what Paul would say to the church at Ephesus, to speak the truth, but to do so with grace. To restore your brother with gentleness. To take on the character of Jesus and have meekness in a very tumultuous election season. And so um, Jeremiah uh, uh, has asked that we read through and look at Matthew 10. So if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Matthew 10 today. Uh, specifically, I, I'm, I'm perplexed by this passage, but I'm just so impassioned by it because what we see Jesus in the context of this is Jesus has identified his disciples, one, in the beginning of this chapter, and then he's called them out in, this, in the second part of this chapter. What Jesus has done in, Ma in the beginning of Matthew 10 is he said that these are going to be my disciples. He's identifying who they are, and then he's giving, him, giving them their marching orders as they're following up. So you see the beauty of Jesus is what he's doing is he's identifying them, he's calling them out, but then the third part that's so important is he's giving them authority. He's giving them the power to do this. Jesus isn't calling us to do something that he's not willing to empower us to do in this particular moment. Jesus is calling us by his grace, and his grace is equipping us in this moment. 
The beauty of what we're, what we're hearing in this, the beginning of the context of this passage is the reality that Jesus has identified uh, disciples, not only them, but he's also identified disciples today. He's not only calling us out, but he's also empowering us to go out into this world. You see, the reality of the matter is that we are his disciples and we have been called to go out into this world. And our fear should not be a fear of failure, but it's succeeding at the things that don't matter. And so Jesus, in Matthew 10, as he's identified individuals that he's called out as his disciples, as he's empowered them to go out, in Matthew 10, verse 12, what we're seeing in that point is he's telling us what they're going into and how they're to respond to the area that they're going to. And so notice in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 12, notice what Jesus says, or beginning in verse 16, rather, notice what Jesus says. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Um, in the first part, we're seeing this rich imagery that Jesus is giving uh, uh, of these animals, essentially. He's saying that you're going out as sheep amidst wolves. You're, going at, you're to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. What is the sheep amidst wolves? It's really fascinating because it's one thing for the wolves to go to the sheep. That makes logical sense to us. Of course, the wolves go to the sheep because they want, they want dinner, right? Um, but it's another thing for us to be sheep that are be sent out amidst the wolves. It's almost a spin that Jesus is offering us in this particular moment. Um, he's, to a certain degree, is sending us to particular doom, one might be able to say. Um, he is sending us to go to a place that essentially where we're going to experience or the likelihood of experiencing failure is going to be great. So what is Jesus doing in this moment? He's wanting to set our goals in such a way that it makes us a little scared. Uh, he wants us to do certain things that we are keenly aware that we cannot do on our own. Um, when Jesus sends his sheep out amidst the wolves, he's setting the sides high so that we can only achieve those ends with his power. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever done anything where you just knowingly walk into it knowing that I'm going to need God's help in this, <laughs> right? Um, I, I finished grad school um, a couple of years ago. Um, finishing grad school is something about 25% of the American populace does, but you know what 25% of the American populace doesn't do? They don't almost fail kindergarten and do fail their driver's tests. <laughs> you know? Uh, when I went into grad school, I was keenly aware that I was the kid that had to go to the library every Saturday morning with my parents because I didn't know how to read really well. Um, uh, you know, uh, coming here this morning and standing in this pulpit, you know, I, I remember coming to faith in Jesus when I was a senior in high school. And I remember the moment when I went into the Sunday school room 
and I was uh, getting uh, questions were being asked of the Sunday was uh, the Sunday school teacher was asking us particular questions, and I was keenly aware in that moment that I had no clue what she was talking about. I was intimately acquainted with my ignorance, but dare here I am. God is in the business of sending us to do things that are bigger than we can imagine. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? He is sending us out as sheep amidst the wolves. What does that look like? Um, you are to be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. Let's take this idea of shrewd as serpents. Um, the reality of the matter is, um, I, for me, I think snakes are a reminder of the brokenness of this world. When I see a snake, the last thing I want to do is to be compared to it. I don't even want to be Slytherin from Harry Potter, for goodness sake. I'm much more of a Gryffindor man myself. Like, I, I, I'm not a big fan of being likened to a snake. But what we know about snakes is that those snakes attack people. Snakes don't attack everybody. Snakes are very selective in who they attack when the danger is imminent and present. They attack. You, you see, snakes don't fight uh, on every hill. Uh, snakes may approach every hill, but not every hill is worth dying on. You see, snakes have a shrewdness. They have a wisdom in what they're doing. Not only is Jesus liking us to be shrewd as serpents, but he's also calling us to be innocent as doves. You know, uh, Dove's innocence is bringing up this Old Testament imagery of the Levitical code of offering up the pure sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament. What is Jesus pointing us to in this particular moment? What Jesus is pointing us to in this particular moment is he's saying, I want you not only to be wise as a serpent, but I also want you to recognize that you're walking into a place where it's going to be very easy for you to go tick for tack for them. Jesus has told us that you will be persecuted. Blessed are those that are persecuted for, my, for righteousness' sake, right? But hear me. God is not saying you're going to be persecuted simply just because of righteousness' sake. Uh, Paul would say that to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 that indeed all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12 that, uh, that indeed be prepared for the fiery ordeal that comes among you. John would say in John 16.33, uh, for you, you will have trouble in this world. And the propensity, especially for all of us, is this sense that if they're doing that to me, then I can reciprocate that to them. But as my grandma would say, two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, that even though they're harsh against you, it doesn't mean that you reciprocate and be harsh to them. Um, you see, Jesus is calling us to be innocent as doves, shrewd as serpents. Um, but then there's this there's fascinating thing that happens here. Um, with exercising wisdom, one, exercising uh, innocence, two, and then the, the action that comes from it is to know that their officials and the synagogue individuals are going to drag you and flog you. This passage just gets, keeps on getting greater and greater, doesn't it? Um, that 
uh, essentially know that because of the beliefs that you're going to be harboring, because of the stands that you're going to be taking, that you're going to be dragged through the streets as well as flogged in the streets. What this, is, what this is doing is this is, is closely associating in the text with the concepts of guilt and shame. They're going to try to tell you you've done wrong, and they're going to try to tell you you are wrong. Um, you see, guilt is closely associated with the idea of pointing to some past action or present behavior, and shame says it's not just an action of what you've done, it's who you are that's wrong. And so, but what does the gospel free us to understand? That guilt says you've done wrong, shame says you are wrong, but the gospel says you've been made right. Um, That you're going to be uh, persecuted for my sake. You're going to be dragged to the streets. You're going to be flogged. Um, Individuals are going to guilt you and they're going to shame you. But know that I'm going to be with you And if I am for you, who can be against you? And so what does this look like in a 2020 context? What does this look like? Because I don't see anybody getting flogged in the streets. I see some mic drops on toes. I see some hot takes that are offered. I, I see people being shamed online and canceled within the culture. What does this look like for us in 2020? Well, I would submit to you that we may not be getting flogged in the streets and dragged through the courts. That is the tension and the intensity that is a part of this, uh, our present moment is very much to such an extent. So, for example, there was research that was done out of Syracuse University. Researchers identified and coined a particular term known as motive attribution symmetry. Um, and what, the, what they found with this particular theory Uh, utilizing various studies over a three-year period is that the tension in the U.S. is comparable to the tension that is a part of the Israeli and Palestinian conflict right now. That that there there is just a heightened tension in the political discourse right now that's comparable to Middle East politics. Uh, And what's at the root of that, this mode of attribution symmetry? The root of that is this understanding that I'm operating from a position of love but my enemy operates from a position of hate. We don't even think about the best. We don't even have faith in their position being from the best. We operate that we're operating from a place of love. The other side is operating from a place of hate. Isn't that fascinating? Not only is there motive attribution symmetry that's characterizing this particular environment, but there's also what's known um, as the common tribes, or the hidden tribes, rather, study that came out. The hidden tribes study that came out that indicated that 14% of the American adult populace it is, it can be le- uh, labeled extreme. That's 8% on the left and 6%, 6% on the right. And I, I want to read you uh, what, what, these, what this study found in this, the hidden tribe study. Uh, It says that uh, on the one side, there is the progressive activist that you'll hear words like, quote, deeply concerned with equity and fairness and and willing to justify particular ends to accomplish those measures, i.e. violence. And then on the right side, there is the, quote, devoted conservatives that feel like America is, quote, embattled and they perceive themselves as the last defenders of traditional values, Um, close quote. 
there is, there is a growing sense here in the U.S. On the, on the opposite sides that one, one side's operating from love and the other side's operating from hate, one. Two, there is a heightened awareness and tension that's building between just 14% of the American populace, but this minority positions on both sides is intensifying the entire conversation within the 100%. Two, to the extent that three, now we're operating from what's, what's been t termed as negative partisanship, where now what we found over the past 20 years is that Americans no longer are voting for a particular set of propositions, they're voting against a set of propositions. So I'm not necessarily voting because I enjoy this particular party or I align with these particular values, but them, I'm voting against them, is how we're being known as today. And so what is that given rise of? Well, recently Gallup came up with a Gallup uh, position to study, and, and it's not simply just a a harboring hatred that's, that's burbling up within individuals on both sides. But now there's a sense that there's a use of violence to justify the positions that one holds. That 10 years ago, the average, uh, only 10% or a little less than 10%, it's 8 to 10% of Americans would say that violence was justified in order to assert their belief. Now that number has jumped upwards of 30%. Aren't you so glad you came this morning? Um, you see, when, when you hear about this particular environment that we're in, the other side is operating from hate. I'm voting not because of what I believe, but rather what, what I hate about the other side and using violence to justify that. That is antithetical to the biblical narrative. What does the scripture tell us? Scripture tells us in John 13 that we're supposed to be known by our love, right? Uh, the scripture tells us that, that though we are citizens in this world, we're citizens of another world in Philippians 3. Um, what does the scripture tell us? The scripture tells us that, that when you are slapped on one side, you turn the other cheek. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so what has God called us to do in this particular moment? To go into this arena. And when we go into this arena, we're fully aware that there are individuals that are going to try to metaphorically flog us, drag us, and try to persuade us to hate the other side and to recognize that they are worthy of hatred. But what has God done for us? Even though we were enemies of God, it says in Ephesians 2, even though it says that we were opposed to him in Colossians 1, what did God do to us? He continued to pursue after us. He continued to allure us by his grace. That God didn't give up on us and we can't give up on the other side, whatever that other side happens to be for you. That we aren't to be known as individuals that are against certain things but are for the right things. And so what does God tell us to do in this particular moment? What it says is just be aware of these things but also to bear witness 
to recognize, one, to bear witness against them being the temple officials and the Gentiles. Um, here's, here's the difficulty that we find ourselves in today as we seek to bear this witness. Um, the reality is the bearing of witness is increasingly more difficult today because the other side just doesn't want to listen. And the people that listen to you is your side. And so what does that look like to bear witness on your side? Well, um, there's a, there's a poignant phrase that, that's important for us to recognize in this other side. Uh, the poignant phrase is coined by an individual named Lord Acton. And Lord Acton had this phrase that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Have we heard this phrase before? Um, and kind of the phrase, what we've come to know the phrase as, is, is this reality that we think that the individual that's in power, if they hold all this power, it can be, have a very corrupting influence upon them. But that's not what Lord Acton was trying to get at when he offered this particular phrase. What he was saying in that particular moment was that absolute power corrupts absolutely to the extent that the individuals that are close to the person of power, they begin to forsake their conscience to keep close to power, and they hold their tongue. What are they doing in this moment? Instead of, instead of being the friendly arrow, right, Bless the friendly arrows and not the enemies, of, uh, the kisses from your enemy, from Proverbs 27. In this moment, uh, we are to bear witness and, and to be willing to call out and lovingly restore and gently rebuke our brothers and sisters for his sake. So what does that, what does that continue to look like as we bear witness for his sake? Well, notice what the text says. This is what was so important of, of, the, of the, the charge that he's giving us in this moment. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak. You see, he says, don't be anxious for how you speak or what you're to say. For what you're to say, you will give in in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who is speaking through you. What he's saying in that moment is that there's going to be moments where you're going to have to have these tough conversations with the people that you love. It's going to be very difficult, not necessarily because you're wanting to speak out against the other side, which you are to do, but also to speak out against your side. And, and sometimes we can be at a loss for words at that particular moment. But what God says is, don't worry, I'm not only going to give you the words to say, but I'm going to be speaking through you in that moment. You are going to be the embodiment and the representation of God the Father in those tense moments where you don't have anything to say. No pressure, <laughs> right? No pressure. Because in that moment, what we're seeing is that God is saying that not only am I calling you to difficult places, but I'm also empowering you to do difficult things by my power to do those things. In that moment, we're not to be anxious because we know that God daily bears our burdens. We know that he has provided us a peace which is beyond understanding. We know in that moment that the, te the, 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 the difficulties may seem very significant in that moment, but we know that God is going to provide us in that moment the words that we might be able to say and the way in which to say those words. Because the beauty of the, the reality of this is that even though individuals are getting flogged in the streets, even though individuals are saying that the other side hates and I'm only operating from love, even though individuals are trying to justify the use of violence to assert their beliefs, that there is nothing new that's underneath the sun. 
And that's the exact same thing they did to our Jesus, that he has called us to be lambs, but the reality is that he is the lamb that was pure as snow because he was the innocent dove that was offered for us for the sake of the sins of the world. And not only was he the innocent lamb, not only was he the, not only was he the dove that, was, that gave his life so that he might give us the forgiveness of sins, but he was not only willing to die for us, but he was also willing to be resurrected so that he might have a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord, including the kings of this world. The reality of the matter is that the temperature is really high right now. The intensity is really high. Why? Because individuals have placed an unnecessary onus upon politics to be able to save this world. But the reality is somebody's already saved the world. His name is Jesus. And when that pressure is released to not put unnecessary expectations upon political measures, it allows us to appreciate it for what it is instead of, instead of trying to worship it for what it's not. That politics is the avenue by which we can love our neighbor, but it's not the only way to love our neighbor. That we've placed an unnecessary burden upon the political arrangements and structures that we have in this place that think it's got to be the very reason to save the world. It's the hope that we have. But the reality of the matter is we have a strong and living hope, and his name is Jesus, anchored within the, within the, within the holy room of God, seated at the right hand of Father. It says in Hebrews 7, he lives to intercede on our behalf. When we recognize as Christians walking into the political arena that this isn't my ultimate hope, this isn't the thing that's going to save the world, somebody's already done that. His name is Jesus, and I come in his name for his sake to bear witness. It de-intensifies the situation. And here's the key. It frees me then from the goal of being to win the culture, but to recognize the true goal is to be faithful to the Creator. I'm not trying to win a culture war. I'm trying to be faithful to the Creator of this world. And what does that look like? Being like the Father. What what has the Father done? In in the story of Adam and Eve, he didn't rush after Adam and Eve, though they did wrong. He quietly walked through the garden and approached them and asked them a question, where are you? When it came came to, uh, to, to Noah, what did he do? He quietly approached Noah, even though Noah had woken, drunken stupor in his tent. What did he do with Peter? even though Peter denied him three times that God would continue to approach him and ask him questions about his faithfulness and empower him with a mission to go and to be the rock upon which he builds his church. What did he do with Paul, even though Paul was breathing out threats against the church? He approached Paul and he says that I've got a a mission for you to be able to go into the world so that individuals would hear your name and would glorify me because of you, it says in Galatians 1.24. What does it look like for us as we walk into this area in which we're getting flogged, in which we're getting drugged? It's to recognize that we're the person of Jesus in these moments and not to be hostile 
and not to think that the goal is to be countercultural, but the goal is to be loving. Why? Because as G.K. Chesterton said, the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves who's behind him. And who's behind us? The God who is love. Um, and so what does that look like today? Um, to wrap up, uh, I have a, uh, when I was uh, in seventh grade, I was uh, our the D.A.R.E. program. I don't know if you're familiar with D.A.R.E., uh, Drug Awareness and Resistance Education. Thank you, Nancy Reagan. Um, uh, the D.A.R.E. program uh, was at Northeast uh, School, and they had a speech contest for individuals um, uh, that you could get a speech and try to win the speech contest and then deliver the speech before the people at the D.A.R.E. graduation ceremony. And I was given the opportunity to participate. And so what did I do as a very competitive seventh grader? I assembled my speech writing team, i.e. me, myself, and my dad, um, uh, to put together this uh, speech. Uh, and so we worked every night after dinner to put together this speech so that it could be uh, put together and just could captivate the ears. And then, uh, um, and then eventually the time came that I turned in my speech and then they uh, announced over the announcements at the very end of one particular day who the winners are. Um, and ironically enough, Mr. Copenhagen, the vice principal, <laughs> came on and he was uh, offering up the winners. And he says in third place, nobody remembers, second place, first loser, first place, Nicholas Pitts. <sighs> the crowd goes wild, as you would expect for a speech contest in seventh grade. Um, and and then I begin to get a little bit worried because I have this quality about me that is known as being shy. I didn't like to interact with the donut lady at the donut store growing up. I didn't want to go to the post office and deal with the post, postal workers. Um, so I eventually, uh, I remember going home thinking I was gonna make some excuses to my dad. Say something along the lines of, Dad, I've got, uh, we've got a dental appointment that we've got to do. We've got something. I've got a doctor's appointment. I can't do this. And I remember in that moment um, that my dad gave me these words that forever have marked my lives that I still treasure to this day. And he said, son, uh, a, a speech was not meant to stay on paper, but was meant to go and tickle the ears of its listeners. And just as my father had helped me to write this speech, then, over the next week, my dad started helping me figure out how to deliver a speech, to be able to internalize it so that you could have this conversation with people, um, and to know that it's not just what you say, but it's also the posture that you hold and how you conduct yourself. And he wanted to make sure that I was able to deliver this speech just as effectively as we had put together this speech. And the time came, and I remember I got called out of class a little bit early, and I went down to the very bottom of the gym where the stage was, and then I heard the bell, and I heard all of these people start crowding in to the gymnasium, all my peers. And I had this seat on the stage next to the police chief and the mayor and the dare officer. And I'm beginning to sense, like, really getting nervous about this um, to the extent that I was wondering, what's the penalty for pulling the fire alarm? Uh, to be able to get out of this. Um, and in that moment, eventually the program started and I knew that I was about to get going. And I was so nervous and so anxious. 
But then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this middle-aged man walk in the back, dressed in a suit amongst a bunch of seventh graders, and it was my father. And left work so that he could be there to hear me speak. Not only was my, my dad willing to help me write the speech, not only was he helping me to deliver the speech, but he was going to be there for me as I delivered it. Why? Because he's a good dad that not only helped me beforehand, he's there with me in the moment. My dad is, is a, nothing but a mere echo of our Father who's in heaven that has called us to go as sheep amongst the wolves and to be his voice in a world that says, I want you to hate and I want you to use violence to justify those particular ends. I want you to go and to be my voice that is speaking the truth in love, that is known for your love, that recognizes the end goal is not to win the culture, but to be faithful to the Creator. And he who started that good work will see it to completion. Um, this morning, many, maybe some of you are uh, uh, feeling the weight of the political climate. There has been broken families that have happened because of it, tension with friends in light of it. And the beauty of our God is, not only does he know about it, but he wants to do something about it. And he is asking us in these moments just to pray and to ask him to work in a profound ways. Others of you, maybe this is the first time you've heard about this God that not only is calling us to go into this world and to be his light, but has come into this world to save you and to be the light of your life. Maybe that's uh, something that you need to deal with. We want to open up the opportunity for you to respond today. You can do that in one of two ways. One, you can respond here during this time of prayer that we will offer into, one. Or two, there's an opportunity to be able to talk with ministers outside um, today. And so they'll be on, in the East Lawn as well, ministers and individuals that can help process what you're going through at this particular moment. And I want to, give, I want to just encourage you to exercise the boldness and the courage to do business with God, and if necessary, do business and, and talk to someone as we make our way a mere 16 days from this electoral uh, campaign. Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Gracious God, I'm so thankful um, uh, for this, this time that you've given us, Father, and for this charge that you've put before us to go and to be sheep, to be innocent, Father, to be, to be wise, and to be your voice, to be the voice of love, boldness, meekness, truth, Father, in this world. And so, Father, uh, you know the hearts of your people, and I ask that you would just mend what's broken, that you would empower what's insecure, and that you would just do a mighty work, Father, so that we might leave this room different than when we walked in. And the reason why we can do that, Father, is because of what you've already done in your son Jesus. That he was, you were calling us to be sheep. He was the sheep that gave his life for his flock. Empowering us, Father, to go out into this world. We love you, God, and I thank you so much for your son Jesus. And we offer these things in his name.
Amen.